Day after tomorrow, gentlemen, we'll be in Las Vegas. Welcome to Vegas. Las Vegas functions on a 24-hour-a-day schedule. The pools, the casino, big volcano out in front. That's the Eiffel Tower. Bellagio. Riviera. The Mirage. Flamingo. Sahara. The MGM Grand. This isn't the real Caesars Palace, is it? Want to gamble? They always put the machines that pay off the most right in the front. Good luck. The Strip is just the most amazing stretch of road, I think, probably anywhere in the world. Kicking ass in Vegas. Vegas, baby. Vegas, baby. Welcome to Las Vegas. Most remember the Riviera as the old rundown place it felt like towards the end of its existence. But the Riviera roamed the landscape like giants for a time, attracting the biggest names in entertainment. However, that was a long time ago, and the Riviera was not able to keep up with changing tastes. And as Liberace and Dean Martin's stars began to fade, so did the Riviera, gradually declining into the property she was for her last 20 years, a grind joint. The Riviera is no longer with us. While romantic hearts will look at this tragically, realists will acknowledge that Riviera is simply a story of a life cycle, the evolution of a property, from inception to implosion. Here is that story. In 1952, it was known as the Casablanca, a new project for the Las Vegas Strip. The gaming application was originally with William Biscoff as one of the majority owners, 40% to be exact. However, when it was discovered that he was better known as Lefty Clark, a member of the Detroit Syndicate and an associate of Meyer Lansky, who was currently dealing with attempts to have his citizenship revoked, a ruling on the application was deferred. By January of 53, Biscoff withdrew his application. However, the Gaming Commission was unsatisfied with the inconsistency in stories as to how Lefty Clark became the majority owner in the project in the first place, and once again, recommended the license for deferment. Despite his past, the fact of the matter was, of all the other investors, mostly doctors, movie producers, and Florida businessmen, Biscoff was the only one who knew how to run a casino. In February of 53, Clarence Bucky Harris filed for a license for the Hotel Casablanca. At the time, Harris had already been licensed for several years at a hotel casino in Lake Tahoe named the North Shore Club. His application made a point of clarifying that he would own no part of the hotel. He was being brought in to manage the casino, be paid a salary and commission of 5% of net profits. The five remaining original investors also clarified that they absorbed among the five of them the 40% interest held by Biscoff. With leadership on the project they felt comfortable giving serious consideration to for a gambling license, the application was reopened for the review process. While under review, the application was amended to show new ownership that included the Marx Brothers. You know, the family of vaudeville performers with names like Chico, Zeppo, Harpo, and most recognizable Groucho, with his signature look of thick black grease-painted rectangle mustache and eyebrows, glasses, and a cigar. If that doesn't ring a bell, you know that goofy bushy eyebrows, glasses, nose, and mustache comic disguise? That was modeled after Groucho Marx. Fun fact, they all had stage names except, of course, for Harpo, whose actual name was Arthur, but born Adolf until he changed it until 1911, 25 years before another Adolf kind of ruined the name for everybody, especially for those with Jewish descent. 
The only reason it was legally changed, the New Yorker magazine preferred it to his birth name. Now, with recognizable celebrity names attached to the project and a request to make a final ruling on the project so that it can either begin or be abandoned, the commission approved licensing and permits on September 22, 1953 for the $4.5 million 300-room hotel casino to be built in between Desert Inn and the Thunderbird. The revised application boldly proclaimed intentions to open on April 15, 1955. Despite finally receiving approval on the project and the clear completion date announcement, it's surprising that groundbreaking on the project didn't happen until May of 1954. However, once it started, Taylor Construction wasted no time making progress. Taylor Construction would later go on to be responsible for building the Tropicana, the International, later and best known as the Hilton, and the original MGM Grand, known today as Bally's. During construction, progress was delayed as a result of a few union labor strikes. It isn't exactly clear when the name of the project was officially changed, but it was around that time that it stopped being referred to as Casablanca and started being known as the Riviera. With properties now being built closer to one another on the Strip, a common complaint from neighbors any time a new project would get underway were noise complaints. Fortunately, the city wouldn't allow such distractions to prevent progress. Equal parts publicity stunt and headliner courting, in November of 1954, Liberace was given a tour of the construction site. Ownership proudly showed off their project and bragged that it would bring the first high-rise hotel concept to the Strip. This concept not only required less square footage to build a strip property, but by abandoning the motel concept that dominated the strip, the Riviera would give guests the convenience of being just an elevator ride away from the casino. Oh yeah, they were the first hotel in Vegas to have elevators. By December of 54, with visible progress skyward, promotions for the $7.5 million, nine-story tall amenity began to flood the market. Riviera's architectural design is described as neo-modern, which is to say it utilized new technologies in materials such as glass, steel, and reinforced concrete to create less ornamental structures in favor of more functional, if not somewhat boxy, designs. That's not to say that they were all boring buildings without any character. This movement focused on straight lines and shapes to express itself on the exterior while offering the interior the flexibility to be used for multiple purposes something that would be easy to remodel without the need for structural adjustments. Due to another last-minute union walkout, Riviera missed its projected April 14th opening by five days, allowing for the Royal Nevada to open its doors before the Riviera. The Royal Nevada opened on April 19, 1955. The Riviera opened the following day. Two of three new resorts opened on the Strip within a month of one another, the last one being the Dunes, which opened on May 23, 1955. The Riviera's grand opening would be the biggest to date in Las Vegas, fitting considering all the other record-setting things that would be accomplished on opening day. The Riviera was the first high-rise in Las Vegas and the ninth resort on the Strip. For a time, it was the tallest building in the city. Liberace, the resident headliner at the new property, was on hand to help cut the opening ribbon. Liberace's $50,000 a week salary was an unheard of amount at the time, considering before the move to Riviera, he was making $750 a week at the New Frontier. Also, just for some additional context, in 1955, you could buy a home for $10,000. Cynical columnists at the time claimed that 
While entertainment was always a loss leader for casinos, in Liberace's case, there were reports of fans heading straight to the show and never spending any time or money in the casino. In addition to Liberace, actress Joan Crawford was brought in to be the official hostess of the grand opening festivities at the new property, receiving $10,000, a comp room, and meals for four days of greeting guests. The price tag Liberace and Crawford received set a precedent that would radically alter the financial landscape of headliner entertainment in Las Vegas and around the world. It also marked the beginning of the end for world-famous clubs like the Copacabana in New York and Coconut Grove in L.A., unable to keep up with salaries and perks a Vegas casino could offer performers. From then on, if Vegas came calling, everyone else had to stand in line. The grand opening of the Riviera attracted worldwide attention in addition to the customary well wishes from existing properties on the Strip in the form of ads taken out in the local newspapers. Liberace had fashion designer Christian Dior make an ornate white tuxedo he wore on stage. During his residency, Liberace stayed in the penthouse suite at the property. One day, a mattress caught on fire in the ninth floor penthouse. However, Clark County had not updated its civic infrastructure to accommodate the tallest building in their city, aka they didn't have ladders tall enough to reach the ninth floor so they could put out the fire. Instead, those affected on the ninth floor were instructed by firefighters on the ground to stick their heads out of the windows so they could breathe fresh air until the situation could be resolved. Less than a month after the property opened and Liberace began his residency, his show was featured live on TV in the Colgate Comedy Hour TV show. While everything appeared to be going well for the Riviera, the truth is the inexperience of its ownership group caused massive losses in the hotel. We hope you've enjoyed this premium content preview. For access to the rest of this episode, as well as all the premium content we offer, go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. A monthly subscription will give you access to the enhanced version of the podcast, often with bonus content, exclusive podcasts like 360 Vintage Vegas, 360 Origins, 360 Vegas Movies, insider information on all things 360 Vegas, 360 Vegas Vacation, and early access to everything. To subscribe, simply go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can find a link to Patreon on our blog, 360vegaspodcast.com. Hey!